The thick cloud called a piper cub's tail. The match struck blue. We got my mother's father. slipped on his wooden fish head. The mouth worked and snapped all the bees back to the bungalow. I cried like a buyer Veterans Day Poppy Hello and welcome to Track by Track presents Trout Mask Replica. My name is Joel Bacher. I am guest hosting for Darren Husted as we go track by track through Captain Beefheart and his Magic Band's legendary 1969 double album Trout Mask Replica. Today we are discussing She's Too Much for My Mirror, track 23, track 4 on side 4 of Trout Mask Replica. It was recorded at Whitney Studios in Glendale, California, March of 1969. Personnel is Bill Harkelroad, a.k.a. Zoothorn Rollo on guitar, Jeff Cotton, a.k.a. Antenna Jimmy Siemens on guitar, Mark Boston, a.k.a. Rocket Morton on bass, John French, a.k.a. Drumbo on drums, Don Van Fleet, a.k.a. Captain Beefheart on vocals, and the engineer Dick Kunk is briefly heard, I really hope I'm pronouncing his last name correctly, (laughs) is briefly heard speaking at the very beginning of this track. Length of the track, it's another epic. It's one minute and 40 seconds. Uh, My guest today is a former curator for the Smithsonian, Tony Janitis. Tony, welcome to the show. How are you doing, Joe? Doing very well, thank you. Thanks for being on the show. Oh, man, my privilege. So uh, your name was given to me uh, by, by Paul Dickinson, so... Um, before I ask where you first got into, to Captain Beefheart, I mean, uh, Beefheart's pretty huge in, in Paul's life. How did you first meet Paul? Uh, Paul and I played football, junior league football together. His dad was the coach and, uh, he lived about half a mile from where I grew up in Florida, outside of Tampa. And we became good friends. He was within bicycle riding distance. And, uh, yeah, so I, I've known him. Very well, since around 1971 or 1972. He has, uh, after we spoke uh, together, we did the he did the China Pig episode. Uh, he sent me some some pictures of what he calls the Beefheart Room in his house, which is a pretty jaw dropping collection of Beefheart memorabilia. Uh, yeah, he. I think he probably has one of the three great Beefheart collections, definitely in the United States. Although there's someone in the UK that. Uh, may top him, uh, which irks Paul to no end. But uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but uh, oh my gosh, yeah. Uh, we've both been uh, Beefheart fans from almost the same day, I would say. We went to a party at a friend's house in 1975, possibly 1976, uh, a record collector named Mike Knapp. And Mike Knapp had a circle of friends uh must have been like gertrude stein's salon and it was <laughs> it was trial by fire you went into the first stereo room i ever saw an entire room devoted to records and stereo equipment and invariably you were sat down and tested with orange claw hammer and uh i feel certain paul and i were in the same room at the same time paul says that he loved it from first listen and i i had to borrow the album and uh give it a while and in the meantime i bought safe as milk and it, and then i i was able to absorb the beef heart sound i guess 
it's, it, yeah, that's that was uh, uh, Mr. Dickinson told told that story as well, and it seems to me like there may be an entire demographic out of Florida that owes Beefheart fandom to this one man's uh, in, intense. Um, intense proselytizing uh, for trout mask replica that that was his that that was his litmus test yes if you, if you couldn't if you couldn't hang with orange claw hammer you didn't get to hang precisely around. he was the typhoid mary of alternative music <laughs> in tampa in the mid 70s and uh, this guy and his friends uh these guys were listening to yellow magic orchestra and the new york dolls and a lot of things that people most floridians were not listening listening to at the time and uh, I, I, I just I loved it all, and I loved their sarcasm, and they just knew everything about everything. They were just wonderful people to hang around and be abused by, and uh, yeah, great memories. You know, it, it's in this incredibly uh, divisive political climate that we're in currently. Uh, it, it's I see so many people painting swaths of this country all with the same brush. Like I'm I'm from Michigan originally, mm-hmm. and so there's a there's a particular type of person that gets associated with being from the Midwest, and right. and there's there's this kind of I, I think people miss the the heterogeneous nature of of the country that you can be in a place that that one whiteness you know associate as being a relatively conservative area such as florida but you've got these amazing pockets of weirdos that are still just flying exactly i don't know how that happens yeah and i and the only reason i fell into it is i my first job was a bag boy at a local grocery store and this fellow mike knapp his brother worked there also and he invited me to mike's house and uh that was it it was pure luck Otherwise, I'd still be listening to Leonard Skinner and the Outlaws, and you know, m- might dip my toes into Graham Parsons if I was lucky. So your your tastes prior to being exposed to Beefheart then were more along the lines of of what was on the FM radio at that time than the so- Southern rock and, uh, and what would what would now no, be termed classic rock. No, definitely oh, okay. not. Uh, both my parents were avid music fans, and my mother collected country music. And my dad was insane for Stan Kenton and uh, Broadway show tunes. I mean, the Beatles were beloved in our house. Uh, Pete Seeger. Yeah, so we listened to a lot of different music. And uh, it, it was a great way to okay, go. Okay, so up. your tastes were already pretty broad then by the time you got you got to be far. You were, you were primed to be maybe a little more uh, accepting of, of something that was a little out. Precisely. Exactly. I was ready to listen to anything. So the uh, I give each guest the the opportunity to to pick uh, the track that they'd like to talk about, and um, of of the selection that I offered uh, to Mister Janinas, he he selected "She's Too Much for My Mirror." Uh, what was it about this particular track that that drew your attention? Well, as I previously said, the the first Beefheart song I'd ever heard, uh, "Orange Claw Hammer." The second one specifically was "She's Too Much for My Mirror." And I, one of the things that I remember the clearest, and it's incredible. I mean, it's 40 years ago. There was, you could hear studio chatter. Mm-hmm. You, you know, people were talking in the studio, and that was being kept in the on the LP, and that fascinated me. And the song itself, which I hated, <laughs> um, <laughs> but I can remember that when the lyrics get to a part about the, I missed a little red house the tempo changed somewhat and 
And I'm thinking, what is going on here? And it was confusion, really. Uh, it was very unpleasant. And I suppose that somewhere in the back of my mind, I was interested, but it wasn't until I bought Save His Milk that everything began to gel. Um, I was going to listen to it all and collect it all. And uh, yeah, I, I, so that's my second earliest memory of the captain. And, uh, you know, and just a couple months later, I'd get into Frank Zappa, not knowing that there was any anything related to Captain Beefheart. Oh, and, and somebody would give me the book. Yeah, I had no clue. And then either Paul or Mike Knapp would give me the Bongo Fury album, which blew my mind. Oh, my God, these guys are friends. <laughs> and uh, yeah, it's just, it's there's, yeah. <laughs> I, I hope I sound enthusiastic about it because even now, it just it's so much fun to think about. And it's still fun to listen to today. I listened to a couple times yesterday and today to uh, – to get in the groove and uh, just positive vibes. What can I say? Yeah, the the vast majority of people that I've spoken to about this album, I think I think maybe one or two have said that they that they loved it the first time that they heard it, and <laughs> and I I can't remember who my guest was, but I I mentioned that and and my guest said I don't believe them, which <laughs> that may actually have been Paul. I'm not sure, but it. it yeah. Oh, I call him out on that but, all the time. I, I think that that's that there's so little that can prepare you for what this sounds like that I do think and adjust even if you're told beforehand like this stuff's pretty far out when you hear it the first time. Right. There is an adjustment period of you know of initially for many people thinking it sounds horrible and slowly right. becoming acclimated. the The first step always seems to be oh well they mean it to sound like that. Like th- this didn't happen accidentally. This is intentional. And then from there, exactly. the next steps are to to find the things that one appreciates about it. Um, it. I've I've discussed with a few people on the show. What what is a good introductory song from this album to play for someone if you don't want them to run away well. screaming? <laughs> and wow, I, I, I kind of feel like Orange Claw Hammer is actually a pretty good one. It's not terribly representative. But it's very melodic and emotional in a way exactly. that a lot of the other songs yes. on here are not. Like, I I can imagine right. playing Orange Claw Hammer for my wife and her really appreciating it and appreciating his vocals. Whereas if I, I tried to play her, say, Neon Meat Dream of an Octofish, I, I don't <laughs> I don't know. And I, and I have to say, my wife has very broad tastes, but I, I don't know how long that would last. Yeah, no, my wife runs screaming from the room. Uh, we we we're we're both uh, big Nick Lowe and Robin Hitchcock fans, but after that we divide. So, <laughs> uh, you know the the other interesting thing about Orange Claw Hammer is, oh geez, I think around nineteen seventy nine or nineteen eighty, there was a bootleg that came out that had a acoustic Frank Zappa on acoustic guitar. A live mm-hmm. version in the studio. Are you familiar with that? Place there, I don't. 
it's just a it's, it just shows how great the song is because it it, it is melodic and it's it's just a a fascinating version of, of the song and uh and the only other thing i can really just mention about being exposed to captain beefheart and i think it was 1975 right around the corner punk and new wave were coming and mm-hmm. after you listen to captain beefheart you you don't really want to listen to Pete Seeger or Broadway music as much anymore. And uh, that was the path that we all went. Uh, when the Ramones put their first album out, uh, I always tell a friend of mine, Scott Hopkins, who used to own uh, an excellent record store in Tampa. They used to do do a lot of dealing with an import company called Gem Records. And I was standing there at the counter when a box of 45s came in from Gem Records, and there was the first Sex Pistols single which I plunked my money down for. And uh, <laughs> and it's all because of Trout Mask Replica. That's that's the way I went. And uh, I've been happy about it ever since. Yeah, this this album is is definitely capable of being one of those like crossroads records. Absolutely. Where when you hear it and it, you know, if you really get into it, it does tend to change how you how you listen to music, the kinds of things that you're that you're approaching it for. Uh, what what you're getting out of it? So um, when you were initially, you heard Orange Claw Hammer, and then uh, this track, "She's Too Much for My Mirror," which which was set your teeth on edge a bit. Oh yeah. Um, <laughs> was it just curiosity that led you to pick up Safe as Milk? It was a combination of curiosity and thrift, because I'm sure I found it in the Sears cutout bin. Where <laughs> <laughs> hey, I can afford this. It's a dollar ninety nine. Um, yeah, I got that one right away, and uh, I can't remember what came next, but, uh, you know, you really didn't have the internet or a definitive discography, and you just didn't know how many albums he had out. It was just a lot of fun, and uh, even Mike Knapp didn't have them all, so we were finding things here and there, and there was a double LP called uh, the A&M Bootleg Record that had... Oh yeah. That blew my mind when I found that. I'm like, what is this thing? And uh, it, it was it was like that for a good 20 years. And most of the holes are filled now. I don't have the Captain Beefheart interview album like Paul Dickinson does, but uh, I'm going to get one someday. <laughs> it, it's on the one hand, sites like Discogs and th- and things like that are are so incredibly, or even like the ability to look something up on YouTube, are so incredibly helpful because it really does disseminate so much information and you can find things that you would otherwise never in a billion years find. And if you hear, if you hear about some new artist, you can immediately get online and and hear what they sound like within the span of, you know, 30 seconds. And, and there's so much that's wonderful about that. And I don't want to sound like a cranky old man, even though I am. Oh, I know where you're going Um, with this. The, I I do kind of miss that thrill of discovery that, that the thrill of the hunt, it was, there was a lot of, a lot of, uh, it, it kind of like, your passion for it sort of shaped right. who you are in some ways. I, I, uh, when I was about, I think maybe 12 or 13 years old, I really desperately wanted to see the movie Eraserhead. And <laughs> I saw, there I was saw no Paul Dickinson. <laughs> oh, wow. Okay. You guys were really countercultural, uh, uh, spe- spearheading some countercultural stuff down there yeah. going out to see Eraserhead. But yeah, I I, uh, I had my parents drive me to a video store that was like, I think, two and a half hours away from where we lived because it was the only place I could find anywhere nearby that had it. Right. 
And so, and what did you yeah, think that, when you that, saw it? I thought it was brilliant. Yeah, yeah, it was. I, I was, I was, <laughs> I was primed. I was primed for it though because I had seen some other David Lynch films. Okay. So it didn't, it didn't hit me as if I had seen it. If I saw it not having any set of context for it, right. I probably would have thought I had hallucinated. Yeah. Like, yeah. like there's no way this is a real movie. I, I must have, this must have been some horrible nightmare. Right. I'm just remembering <laughs> as a movie, which I, I imagine if you were to, to encounter Captain Beefheart in the wild with no context of, I don't know who this guy is. I don't know where he came from. I don't know anything about this music. Right. It, it, there, I, I wonder if there are people out there who are like, man, I heard this weird song one time and it just, <laughs> yeah. They have no idea what it was or where it went, and and it, it will just linger as some uh, half-forgotten memory. Right. Oh, jeez. Yeah, anything else? Come on, keep the questions going. I don't care. <laughs> <laughs> so so how many how many listens did it take you to get to it? This the how many licks to the center of a Tootsie Roll Pop? <laughs> how long before you were really in really enjoying Trout Mask Replica? Uh, at least ten to fifteen. And I really, okay. I, I put a lot of effort into it um, just because my parents would re-listen to records all the time. There was a real enjoyment in re-listening and you could always hear something new every time, blah, blah, blah. And about a year before acquiring my own copy of Trout Mask, I had bought the uh, original box set of The Ring of the Nibelung, which is about 17 hours. And I had sat there through a couple weekends listening. So I was primed. I had my favorite seat, my bag of pretzels, probably a, a cold ginger ale. And uh, I enjoyed doing that. And I did it quite a few times with Trout Mask. And uh, yeah, all of a sudden I was like, okay, I'm going to sing along with this. <laughs> it started It started to sink in. Did, did your parents hear it? What did your parents think of it? Uh, well, interesting. No, my my father he uh, he loved experimental music, uh, the kind of stuff that Stan Kent was doing at the end of the fifties. So he listened to Captain Beefheart, no comment. He took to Frank Zappa immediately, and uh, I can see that. Yeah. So eventually, we went to see Frank Zappa in uh, St. Petersburg, and my dad says to me, um, "I want to go to that concert." You know, you don't want to go to a concert with your dad. And he talked <laughs> himself into it. And uh, there's a great picture of my dad and I, Paul Dugginson and Mike Knapp, in the, in the audience at a Frank Zappa show. And then afterwards, my dad was so impressed. He says, well, I want to go meet Frank Zappa. I'm like, Dad, you, you can't just go meet Frank Zappa. And I said, yeah, I can. I can just walk around to the back and Wedley walks out. Sure enough, half an hour later, we're standing there. Here comes Frank. My dad walks right up to him and says, you know, Mr. Zappa, your music really reminds me of uh, the Stan Ken Orchestra circa 1959. And Frank Zappa looks at him. I'll never forget this. He says, that's quite a compliment, sir. And they sat down and talked about Stan Ken. Oh, that is so great. Yeah. I'm glad that he was, that he was, uh, I can see why he would take it as a compliment for starters. And I'm, I'm glad that he was outgoing and, and uh, pleasant. Well, he was approached by a non-geeky adult music fan and he was you know he signed my record reluctantly but uh yeah he just wanted to talk music and he met the right guy so that's fantastic yeah. what a great experience to have had with your dad what uh, the other interesting thing that shows the problem with generations is his favorite artist my father's favorite artist stan kenton retired to florida and went to my parents church 
And my dad never had the nerve to go up and introduce himself. Oh, well, I, I can get that. Right. If it's your all-time idol, exactly. I, I would I would be extremely nervous to, <laughs> just, to say right. anything either. I just remember my mom, go talk to Stan Ken. No, he doesn't want to talk to me. <laughs> oh, God. Je- Generally speaking, I've I've taken the approach of if I see someone that I recognize, if I like their work, I, I will at the very least give them a quick yes. Hey, I like your work. Absolutely. And the worst thing the worst thing that's gonna happen is they're just gonna ignore me or they'll just give me a kind of a cursory thanks. And uh, you know, the best experiences have been people have been super friendly or and and, and outgoing. I haven't had anyone be just a complete jerk about such a, a cursory little little hello well that um, probably anything, says something about your approach too. respectful and anything beyond that though right. uh, i've always, i'm always pretty i'm always pretty cautious about <laughs> I, I actually did i i actually um about a, a couple of years ago uh i went to a show up at uh, mccabe's guitar shop in, oh, up sure. in santa monica yeah. and um uh matt graining was there oh nice and I, I knew that he was a big Captain Beefheart fan, oh, so yeah. I went up to him and, and said, "Are you Matt Groening?" And I could see like the hesitation <laughs> in his eyes as he was like, "Yeah." And so, I, and then I started talking to him about Captain Beefheart and Frank Zappa, and I can see like all the weight of, "Oh, he doesn't want to talk about the Simpsons." Oh, go out of his, yeah. go out of his shoulders. And right. then he was very chatty and 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 outgoing. We talked about Captain Beefheart yeah. for a good yeah. fifteen minutes or so. Yeah. But, <laughs> oh yeah, the same thing had happened to me years ago. Uh, with I don't I don't know if you're familiar with Boston's uh, Jonathan Richmond. Um, oh, of course, yeah, yeah. So I had gone to see a show uh, in Atlanta. It was the first time he toured the South, and I was supposed to have an interview with him for a local radio show in Tampa. And uh, I walked up to him, introduced myself, and uh, we instantly just started talking about Indian food. And that's all we talked about. And so after the interview, we went out and had Indian food. And he mentioned he was going to go to Florida. And I said, well, just stay at my parents' house. And then you can just drive your gigs from there. He's like, yeah, okay. So he's been a family friend ever since. And uh, a lot of good memories of him standing in the kitchen with his guitar singing to my parents. And uh, my parents just being blown away. So... Yeah, that is so fantastic. I, I've I've always heard that he is a very like approachable and affable man. So that's 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 so cool that he's that he's that outgoing and that you guys were were able to to eke a friendship out of out of what had initially been yeah initially been an interview. Yeah, there's a lot more to that story, and I'll tell you about it in private someday. But uh, <laughs> uh, fair enough. Yeah. Uh, just anyway, all my record collecting, my intense love of new wave uh everything it all stems from trout mask replica replica and uh yeah it's it's the the cornerstone for sure so on on this particular track i i was um i was listening to it again earlier and and there's also um and on the i'm sure i'm sure you've heard on the the grow fins box there's the rehearsal tapes right of this where you can actually hear the band uh performing <laughs> it instrumentally without without don's voice uh kind of overshadowing what they're doing this is this is i can see why this one was particularly um it's interesting to me that he went from orange claw hammer to this because this is a pretty like gnarled and challenging composition absolutely it's churning like a angry river i mean there's flat spots and there's rapids and uh yeah it it 
upset me quite a bit when I heard it. And I, I, I mentioned him all the time in on the different episodes of the show, but it, it bears repeating every time the phenomenal performance of John French on the drums on this track, just, <laughs> just tying everything together in these like inc- ridiculous rhythms where it seems like he's got a different time signature going on each hand and right. on each foot all at the same time. I, I genuinely have no idea how physically he's able. Oh, to I wish there was some video footage of that. Man. No kidding. Uh, you never but, know. What, you never know what's in the collections out there. Hopefully something will, you know, when did that, when did that box set come out a good 10 or 15 years ago? Something like that. Yeah. I so, pray there's more lurking in the vaults out there. Well, I know Zappa was uh, uh, obsessively recorded material, so it's entirely possible that there's there's additional video and audio that that hasn't been released yet that's right. still lurking in the Zappa vaults somewhere. Well, how did Jack White legally become involved with the reissue of Trout Mask? That's a darn good question, and I, I have no... I couldn't even begin to answer that. He one. must have talked to Gail Zappa or the Zappa Trust and say, hey, let me do this the right way, blah, blah, blah. But I, I would love to know the details. I would too. I mean, if I had to hazard a guess, I'd say that like large bags of money were probably involved, but uh, they certainly did a fantastic job on the, the remaster. Absolutely. It's wonderful. Uh, Third Man does a lot of great, a lot of great vinyl reissue stuff. Um, the I, I was listening to the lyrics on this uh, earlier and looking through um, Mike Barnes's uh, book on the subject mm-hmm. on, on Captain Beefheart. He, he, he refers to the song as being a tale of a mismatch in love. Van Vliet sings about a woman who is so vain <laughs> that he's loath to look in the same overused and abused mirror, which I have to say is entirely not at all the, the interpretation that I that I used to have of this song or that I, that still lingers in my mind of this song when he's, he's singing in the first, you know, it doesn't really follow like a traditional verse chorus for structure as most of the songs on this album don't. Right. But it begins with the, she's too much for my mirror. She almost makes me lose it. The way she abuse it, make me never want to use it. But then he moves into after one of my, one of my very favorite lines on the album, which is, (laughs) well, mend your heart and mind your soul. (laughs) He moves into old Chicago. She's a woman that makes a young man a bum. I always thought the she of this song was Chicago, that he was singing about the city as a woman that was just kind of beating him up because he was having a hard time. Not, I, I mean, obviously it's not autobiographical. He didn't live in Chicago, but I thought I, my interpretation was always that like, you know, the, the blues singers who would focus on, on Chicago as one right. of the urban centers and sweet home Chicago, that kind of thing that, that Chicago was, he says specifically, old Chicago, she's a woman. I thought the, she of she's too much for my mirror was Chicago, but, um, I thought it was a woman to tell you the truth. And he was a, perhaps a young man who was not ready to handle an extremely attractive, uh, carefree spirit that was not ready to settle down with one guy it seems very personal to me i and i think we've all gone through that where we bit off more than we could chew and uh had less absolutely words so I, <laughs> <laughs> i'm not sure but I, I like the city version too Jeez, and i i the use of his use of um certain older slang terms on some of the songs and and terms from like that seem almost like turn of the century or or 1920s hobo slang or something right right. the the reference to 
I remember my mother told me I ought to be choosy. That was way back when I thought she was my friend. Now I find out she's a floozy. floozy which yeah. Is, yeah, floozy is such a great like. Oh well, that's floozies from the days of phosphates. You know, there's a lot of uh, archaic Americana in that LP. And uh, for years, I would irk my parents by we'd stop at McDonald's and my dad would say, what do you want to drink? Oh, a cherry phosphate. And he just, <laughs> it was a private joke amongst me and nobody else. And it made me laugh. That's all that matters. <laughs> you keep yourself entertained. Exactly. Yeah. That, that is um, the, the Americanness of this record is right. another subject that's, that's come up a lot, that it is a, a catalog of very, American imagery and experiences and, and specifically like a, an America that Van Vliet probably was not directly affiliated or aware of, you know, having been born in, I think 47 or whenever he was born, right. like he, he may have caught some of the tail end of it, but his reference points are to, to steal Grill Marcus's term, the old weird America, the, right. the like pre-war. Right. It's um, like a George Crumb affiliation for, I'm in an America that will maybe never existed except in uh, the mind of writers. I'm not sure, but, uh, exactly. Yeah. But, but the, the weird old America is still out there. I can tell you there's some small towns in new England where I live that are. (laughs) That are plenty weird. Oh yeah, (laughs) absolutely. I need to get a video camera and start documenting it because, uh, strange stuff. Uh, that's very intriguing. Um, be careful out there. <laughs> the, the, old, <laughs> the, old, the old weird America does not always take well to being documented. <laughs> That's true. Oh, gosh. But yeah, the the hobo imagery that that pops up uh, so frequently, not just on Trout Mask, but throughout his his oeuvre. He, right. he was fascinated with trains and hobos and, and these the images of itinerant America and the the landscape references that pop up. This is one of the few songs that mentions a specific city mm-hmm. um, mentioning Chicago. So much of his imagery is like, is very nature bound is, is of animals and mountains and streams. And, uh, and it, he returns to it in this song too, with the, I remember the butterflies and the exactly. sweet smell of corn, absolutely fish in that very little pond. Pastoral outlook. Yeah. It's, it's a very unusual quiet moment in this cacophonous song uh song i i i i, I like it <laughs> you've come to like it you, yes. you you it's it's i i hesitate to use the term stockholm syndrome but no it's it's, it's you know uh it's it's wonderful to put the top down on the car and uh drive through the white mountains blasting captain beefheart and uh yeah as long as my wife's not with me, you are you are not the the first person or not the only one to make the association with a with a mountainous landscape with this music. Um, I think it was Jeff Economy stated that he was when he was driving around through South Dakota listening to Shiny Beast Bat Chain Puller nice. was when Beefheart was when Beefheart started to make some kind of sense to him, like so, something about being in that terrain uh, made a difference. I think so that's true. Something about and, jagged mountains, I guess. And sometimes listening in a car by yourself, you really listen to music differently sometimes than you would if it was on your home stereo. 
you know, you're driving and look at the scenery and you're singing along with Captain Beefheart and it, it becomes more personal to you, I think. That's true. And it's, it's more of a, cars are so, it's such an interesting experience because you are, you're out in the world, you're moving through the landscape and yet right. you're isolated within this, this, right. you know, you're this in a tank, show. personal tank. You're yeah. in a slideshow and you need a musical soundtrack. So uh, a lot of times it works. It ends uh, with, as you mentioned, the studio chatter. We have Dick mm-hmm. Kunk at the beginning, right. uh, make, making a little joke that um, I, the the bits of studio chatter included on this album feel very much to me like Zappa's influence. Absolutely, in that he used that frequently, and I don't believe Van Vliet ever used that again on any of his other records. Mm, it's pretty rare, right? And the first time, like I said earlier. I'd never heard that before. Um, just throwing things into the mix, yeah, it was it was a revelation. And uh, and the only time I the, the next time I heard it was on a Beatles bootleg for uh, recording "Let It Be," and there was just so much studio chatter. And uh, yeah, I like that. I like hearing what, what's going on behind the scenes. For a bootleg of "Let It Be," I imagine it was a lot of arguing. There's a lot of quiet spots for sure. I'll, I'll be interested. <laughs> uh, I can't wait to see the new movie that uh, Peter Jackson is directing or remixing of Let It Be. Just to oh, speak. I didn't even know he's doing that. Interesting. Yeah, it's it's all done. They're just waiting for the end of COVID to release it to the theaters. Uh, supposedly, it. it's like extra footage, and it makes Yoko Ono less onerous to viewers. And uh, yeah, we'll see. <laughs> But yeah, know, that'll... <laughs> I I hate Peter Jackson's uh, Lord of the Rings movie because he introduces so many things that aren't in the book. So I'm wondering if he's going to add a couple Beatles or a couple. He's going to write a couple songs for the movie. <laughs> There's going to be some CGI Beatles. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> uh, don't get me started. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's funny. Yeah, that I had no idea he was he was working on that. I didn't even know that honestly that he did any work in in uh, documentaries. So. Oh yeah, well, oh geez, well I hope you get a chance to. He just did a documentary about World War One trench warfare, um, with all original footage, and the soundtrack is the voices of veterans that were there. Uh, oh wow! Gosh, what is the name? I'll find out the name of it and I'll send it to you. It is a mind-blowing movie. I will definitely have to check that out. I, oh. I will admit, not to deviate too far afield from Beefheart, but I did kind of, <laughs> I did kind of tap out on Peter Jackson after after his King Kong. I kind of felt like, eh, you know, I'm kind of done with this guy for a while. Yes. Nothing, nothing against people who love Jackson's movies. No, I just exactly. felt like they were they were hitting a, kind of a terminal point for me. But I agree, hundred uh, percent. I would like to see that sounds fascinating and, and I'd, I'd love to see his uh, I, I'm very intrigued by the, the let it be the let it be remix. I yeah, remember watching the done. original let it be as a, me too. I, I was, I was uh, strangely enough, given that I'm, you know, that I moved into the Beefheart fandom, I was pretty Beatles obsessed as a kid. And I remember just watching let it be and, and, and sitting there thinking, wow, these guys really hated each other. At yeah, this point. yeah, absolutely. Well, that's, that's toned down in the new version. So ah. apparently I haven't seen it yet, but uh, yeah. Uh, what was I just going to say? Something anti Peter Jackson. I'm going to let it go back to, <laughs> back to the subject at hand. 
<laughs> but but uh, in terms of the studio chatter on on this song after after Kunk's um, jovial introduction, uh, you've got the little clip of Van Fleet at the end saying, "Shit, I don't know yeah. how I'm going to get that in there." Right. Which evidently was, according to to both French and Harkle Road, was him expressing frustration that he had more lyrics but had essentially <laughs> run out of song. Oh, I love it. Yeah, that's like I said, that's that's Zappa. He's just he's he's splicing in things. Uh, the which uh, Hark- Harkle Road's quote and and I can still I can still hear the the bitterness in this even some you know forty years later when he wrote his book is that this is something that could have been fixed if he'd actually sung at rehearsals. <laughs> which I, I can I can I can feel yeah I can tell it's still that still stings a little bit that they had to work so hard on this stuff and then then Van Fleet uh, would just kind of come in and smear his lyrics all over it. Hey, it this is something exists. That's the main thing. <laughs> Maybe it would have been worse if they tried to achieve something more polished. I don't know. Yeah, the, this record is such a singular achievement and such an incomparable work that it, it does seem like all all of the the weird stars that had to align for for this for this to be created and to be released in the form that it is. It's just this uh, unduplicable moment in time and and confluence of people that he had these young men in his band that he could essentially badger into producing the music the way he wanted it to sound and that his his old friend had given him the opportunity to basically do whatever he wanted and so he produced this you know 28 tracks that were had borne no relation to anything that was in popular music at the time it's it's it it's staggering to think how how many things had to go right for this album to even even exist well uh, a number of things came out on straight records that you could also say the gto's album uh, that's like nothing else the wild man fisher album is definitely like nothing else how do you how do you get an okay to release two albums by a guy frank who knows where he actually met him along the street according to lore but there's nothing like those movies and who okayed those and who who the hell bought them? <laughs> <laughs> there must have there well, was a very hip crowd in California. If even if they sold three hundred copies, I want to know who those people are. Yeah, for for I mean, for Van Vliet, I can see for for the Beefheart music, right? It it, it found its audience, and there there are people who are are intensely like you know people who are doing podcasts about it, right. like 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 we are, right? Um. With Wild Man Fisher, I don't know if I would get the same kind of enthusiasm if I did a Wild Man Fisher podcast um, from people to <laughs> chiming in to talk about that album. Um, it'd be kind of interesting to do just to see what sort of responses I would I would get because that's who knows. Wow, that that almost uh, an evening with Wild Man Fisher almost makes Trout Mask Replica kind of feel like. Um, <laughs> it, 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 Trout Mask Replica is is a much more composed and thoughtful statement let's put it that way right then an evening with wild man fisher it's, that's <laughs> that that is an album of of uh that that just kind of seems drenched in a very unhinged personality yeah. and to what degree that was performative i genuinely don't know but uh it, it could be an unsettling listen well who, whoever's listening to this podcast please seek out the the two album wild man fisher set on straight records because uh you will be fascinated. 
Absolutely, yeah. And, and the GTOs are, are entertaining listening as well. Again, that's that's much more. Um, there's a a, a cheeriness yeah. to that, oh, that record, sure. and a, of course. And uh, the captain gets gets a name check yeah, on there. The captain's Fat Teresa shoes. Yeah. Um, uh, when Darren is hosting the show for each song, he will rate it out of five. Uh, I say on every episode of this that I rate every track on this album five out of five because not because I love them all equally, but because I really don't feel you can adequately compare them to anything. Um, five out of five. What it, it's <laughs> this is this album is so much its own thing. Definitely. Um, uh, Mr. Janitus, if you would like to rate the track, you are welcome to do so. You don't have to. And if you have anything that you would like to uh, plug or anything that you want to signal boost, uh, th- this is your this is the opportunity. Uh, I would rate the track uh, five just from sheer memorable qualities of jarring me out of my torpor when I was a young man. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> no, nothing to add, but I'm just... Uh, Wonderful to speak with you, Joel, and um, sitting here on a cold Boston night, and uh, I hope everything goes well for you out in the San Diego area. We don't want to hear of any incinerations down there, but uh, hey, thanks for getting in touch. Well, absolutely, and thank you thank you so much for being on the program. Uh, if uh, listeners would like to follow Track by Track on Twitter, we are at underscore Track by Track. If you want to follow me on Twitter or on Instagram, I am at Joel A. Bakker. That's B as in boy, A-K-K-E-R. I recommend Instagram rather than Twitter because Twitter's horrible and Instagram is mostly cat pictures, <laughs> and that's a lot better. So, uh, Mr. Janitis, thank you again so much for being on the show. Anytime, Joel. Have a great day, great evening, and uh, love talking to you. You too. Thank you so much. And thank you for listening. Oh, Lucy! Shit, I don't know how I'm going to get that in there.